Good evening, and welcome to Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department here at the Central Branch. This evening, it is my pleasure to welcome Emily Robertou, who is an American fiction writer, essayist, and City College of New York Associate Professor of English, who teaches creative writing. She grew up in New Jersey and received an MFA from New York University, and her first novel, The Professor's Daughter, was a recipient of a prestigious National Endowment of the Arts Award. Other awards include a fellowship from the New York Foundation for the Arts, the Chicago Tribune's Nelson Algren Award for Short Fiction, and a Pushcart Prize. Her short stories have been widely published and anthologized in such places as Best American Short Stories, Best African American Fiction, and Best American Mystery Stories. Her latest work, Searching for Zion, uh, she will be discussing, and she is also an avid traveler. It is my pleasure to welcome Emily Rabito. Let's give her a warm welcome. Thank you. Thank you all for coming tonight. Um, I have to thank the library for bringing me. Everybody's been so kind. And um, it's an intimate audience. I'm hoping, I'm going to talk to you kind of informally about this journey that I took that became a book. And I really hope that um, you all will ask questions so this can be more like a conversation after I talk to you. And I'm going to read a very little portion of the book so you can get a flavor of it. Um, I also want to thank my, my cousin, Dwayne. <laughs> <laughs> who, whom I've never met um, beyond Facebook. How crazy is that for coming all the way from D.C. to support me tonight? It really um, it makes me feel good to see you and meet you <laughs> in person. Um, so I, uh, I wrote this book, Searching for Zion, after having done a lot of travel over the course of 10 years to pursue this theme of Zion or the promised land. Uh, not so much as we typically think of Zion and Zionism in relation to the Jewish diaspora, but more in relation to the African diaspora. That is, what has the promised land meant as a metaphor and actually a concrete realm for black people in the West? And the reason why I became very interested in this theme was partially because I'm the daughter of a historian of African-American religion, who um, much of whose work is about the importance of the book of Exodus in the lives of, of black people in the West. That is, for people who felt um, in slave times a sense of kinship with the Hebrew slaves of the Bible who were in bondage under Pharaoh and found their way after making this long, arduous journey following Moses to the promised land, that there must also be an equivalent realm for them as slaves um, to be able to journey to a place of freedom. This was an incredibly important message that, in fact, became the most important book um, of the Bible. And it's an important metaphor that has persisted through the history of the religious lives of, of black people, which is why you hear that metaphor being used again and again, not only in Negro spirituals um, and gospel music, but in speeches like the most 
probably the most famous speech of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, his ultimate speech in which he prognosticated his own death, right? Um, I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, um, etc. That he was speaking out of a long and very old tradition. And I, I knew about this um, through my father's scholarship, but also as a fan of reggae music, where we also hear Zion and the promised land being sung about time and time again, right? So... Um, uh, these were themes I kind of understood intellectually and, and as a music fan. And then, as a young woman, I, I traveled um, to Israel, which is where my journey began. And that's where this picture was taken that you see. I'm going to show you some pictures from my travels. I went to Israel to visit uh, my best friend from childhood, who was Jewish, and um, who decided to become an Israeli citizen, there's a term called aliyah, which some of you may know, which is the right that any Jew has in the diaspora to return to the Holy Land and become an Israeli citizen, uh, so long as they're not perceived a danger to the state. And she did this after we graduated from college. She decided to become an Israeli citizen. And I visited her there um, when I was 23 years old. It was during the Second Intifada, a very politically hot time in Israel, as it almost always is. Um, so there were bombs going off in the street. And I was, um, I had two simultaneous and contradictory feelings on that trip. One was kind of an enormous sense of jealousy that my friend had the opportunity to become a citizen of another country. And um, that feeling came because I, I'm biracial, and as a person of mixed race, I had felt often growing up like I wasn't quite sure where I fit in. Um, in my growing up, it felt very much as though the country was still divided along racial lines, and I, I wasn't this and I wasn't that, and it was a sense of not quite belonging. And it seemed to me that my friend, whose name is Tamar, had found a, a place, a country, that embraced her and a people to belong to. As it turns out, it's, it wasn't that easy for her either. It's, it, it's a hard place to live. Um, but I felt very jealous that she could leave America and become something else. And the other thing that happened to me in Israel was I was very surprised to discover black Jews, <laughs> like this young woman, um, who's from the Ethiopian Jewish community known as Falasha, the Falashas, um, also known as Beta Israel. As you can see, she's a soldier in the Israeli Defense Force, and it was not uncommon during my visit there, my initial visit, to see um, soldiers just all over the, the, the streets um, defending Israel while bombs were going off all the time. And so this was the other feeling I had in Israel was, but how can this really be Zion? As beautiful as Jerusalem is, with all this strife going on, um, this doesn't feel like the land of milk and honey to me. And um, here's another photo, um, pictures of holy men from the same community, the African, uh, sorry, the Ethiopian Jews. And there was another group of, of black Jews there. Uh, these are some, some more children from the Ethiopian community. They are recent immigrants, and they are standing outside an absorption center, um, you may have heard in recent news that some of the women from this community have been inoculated or um, uh, given forced sterilizations with Depo-Provera. We can talk about this a little more afterwards because it's slightly off track. 
um, being told that it's inoculations by their their doctors um, without without their consent. They're being they've been sterilized, and so there's this big um, controversy that's just come out in the world news about it. But it wasn't very surprising to me, having learned a little bit about this community in Israel, because their civil rights are not very good. Um, disturbingly, there's another group of Black Jews living in Israel. Uh, known as the African Hebrew Israelites or the Black Hebrews, and I uh, was interested to learn about them too. My initial visit to, to Israel, um, there wasn't time enough to learn more about these two groups. So I went back years later after I had become a professor and had the means to um, explore as a journalist and uh, a writer what their exoduses had been, why they had come to to Israel and whether or not they found the promised land that they dreamed of when they left the home place. This group um, was comprised of about 2,500 African Americans, if you can believe it. It's the largest group of black Americans living outside America. And they've created a kind of utopia in the desert um, next to a nuclear reactor. They've been there since the late 60s, and the state of Israel does not recognize them as Jews. They're, to me, a sort of problematic community. They practice polygamy. Um, but also, I, I, I admired a lot of their um, beliefs and practices. And uh, it, it reminded me a little bit of like a Native American reservation, like a, a, a nation within a nation, because they don't enjoy the rights of citizenship, but they're allowed to squat there and live there. So they have their own government, their own school, their own hospital, etc. And... Um, Many of the people in that community claim uh, to feel much freer there than they did in, in America. One man, an elder, I asked this man in the white, uh, do you really feel this is the promised land? And he said to me, child, I was born in, into a Detroit ghetto. If I wasn't here, I would be dead. Um, that was his cagey answer to that question. Some of their youth, you know, they, they've been there long enough that they've had children who've had children there, many of whose first language is Hebrew, um, some of whom fight in the Israeli defense forces like that, that Ethiopian Jewish uh, young woman I showed you. Even though this group doesn't have Israeli citizenship, they're still fighting on the side of Israel, which I found very interesting as well. So after learning about these groups, I thought... I want to keep pursuing this theme. That is, I want to keep talking to people from the African diaspora who believe in a promised land somewhere else to the degree that they would pick up their roots and journey the world to try to find it in order to ask them um, whether or not they had. This was um, some clothing I was made to wear in order to attend a Sabbath service with the black Hebrews, because the clothes I showed up in were considered immodest. Anyway, this is uh, the next step in my journey was Jamaica, where I went next, um, as I said, as a fan of reggae, I knew Zion was incredibly important to Rastafarians, but I didn't know anything about that faith. And I felt that before I journeyed further, I needed to talk to some Rastas about their beliefs and where Zion was for them, and why. These two Rastas were telling me, even though to you, like to tourists who come here, Jamaica may seem like a paradise, for many of us, it's just a sentence 
that we're living out, like a prison term, before we can return back home. And by home, he meant Africa at large, and in particular, Ethiopia. Here is like a, a triptych, a hero wall that I, that I ran across in Kingston. On the left, of course, you have Bob Marley, um, the most famous face of reggae and, and probably of Rasta as well. And uh, the, the two men to his right, of course, are Marcus Garvey and Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia, whom the Rastas consider to be the, their god and their king, um, really a messiah. We can talk more about why that is. I visited the 12 tribes of Israel headquarters in Kingston. The 12 tribes is one of several sects of the Rasta faith. I didn't know before I went down there, there are many different kinds of Rasta, Rastafarians. Um, and I just showed up and asked um, the men in this sect if they would talk more with me about their beliefs, and I'll read, after I'm done showing you pictures, a portion of a, a scene of me talking to some of those guys. Um, after learning a little bit more about why they thought of, of Ethiopia as Zion and Haile Selassie as the Messiah, I traveled next to Ethiopia because... There are several um, Rastas from the Caribbean who have emigrated to Ethiopia into in, a town called Shashamane, and they have kind of a utopia there. And my question for them was the same. Did you find the promised land you were looking for? The reason why they've gone to Shashamane is that there was some land gifted to them, not just to Rastas, but to all black people of the West. The land was gifted by Haile Selassie as... Uh, um, a thank you for support that had been given to him, financial support, by a lot of black people in the West during the Italian invasion in the 30s. Ethiopia is like a very important realm because um, for Rastas and, and, and many uh, Africans in the diaspora because it's the only African nation never to have been colonized. And Italy made an unsuccessful bid to colonize it. And, um, and, and during that unsuccessful bid, a lot of money came flooding in from people in America and the Caribbean to, to make sure that uh, the Ethiopian army could vanquish them. And partially as a result of that support, as well as a lot of support from Europe, um, they did. Italy was unsuccessful. So here's Shashamane. You can see Emperor Haile Selassie here with his wife, Empress Menon, um, lionized on the cart behind this horse at the hotel where I stayed in the Rasta community. This man, Ras Hailu, is originally from Trinidad, and he's one of the few Rastas who ended up staying there. A lot of them wound up leaving because, ironically, though... Haile Selassie is, is, is like a god to them. Um, for many Ethiopians, he was a tyrant under whose rule hundreds of thousands of Ethiopians starved to death. So when a lot of these Rastas showed up kind of looking to go back home, um, 
they were surprised to find that Haile Selassie had recently been deposed by a socialist revolution that unseated him. Um, and the uh, catchphrase of that revolution was land to the tiller. They wanted to give the land back from that the emperor had possessed, along with the church, to the people so that they could farm it, including some of the land that he had given to um, men like this and black people from the West. So they showed up thinking there was going to be this large parcel of land. In fact, it was much smaller because a lot of it had been repossessed by that revolution, which was called the Derg. And um, assimilation was hard for, for the Rastas because they didn't speak the language, which is very complex. Amharic has a different alphabet. And uh, also, many of the locals didn't understand their religion because most of the locals are entrenched in, um, in uh, Orthodox Christianity, a very ancient form of Christianity. So this man stayed because he married an Ethiopian woman, which allowed him to have deeper ties. And these are his three children. The one in the red dress was named Eden, and on the day I visited, it was her birthday. This man, um, Brother Brian, also stayed because he married an Ethiopian wife. So I found that like the people who had the most success for f- finding home were the ones who became more immersed in the, in the local culture instead of staying in kind of a bubble of what they thought they would find when they came. Um, again, I was made to wrap my hair. This is at the Nyabingi Temple, another one of the sects of the Rasta faith. Um, and I visited on Haile Selassie's birthday their, their temple where they had a celebration. It's considered a holiday, his birthday, much like you know a high holy holiday, like, like Easter or Christmas almost. Um, but that's not something that, like I said, the, the locals would um, celebrate or even really understand. Here is um, kind of another hero wall in Shashamana. You see uh, the emperor here and another, another hero, Malcolm X, here, liberate our minds by any means necessary, which, yeah, <laughs> which was what they intended to do by leaving Jamaica and, and going back to Africa. <laughs> this little boy, Abu, um, is a Habesha, which means a local Ethiopian. And he was looking at me and laughing and calling me Ferengi, which in Amharic means outsider, foreigner, or white person. Um, and, but that's the same term he would use for, for many of the Rastas, right, whose skin is as dark as his, is, you know, Ferengi, outsider, foreigner, white person, other, other, which could be quite hurtful, right, for somebody who's looking to find their roots or come back home. Um, I took this picture in a holy city in Ethiopia called Aksum just, um, just to show the entrenched Christianity there. These people have risen above dawn to worship, and here they are after the sun has risen. But there's a wide divide between um, their, their practices and the Rastas. So they don't, you know, this is another reason why assimilation has been hard for some Rastas, because, because they're practicing actually a, a very different faith. This is another holy city um, called Lalibela, which has um, several churches that are built underground, made out of stone, that are, that are hundreds and hundreds of years old. The next stop on my journey was Ghana, and I went there because um, a lot of those Rastas that hadn't assimilated uh, chose to leave Ethiopia 
Some of them came to America, some of them went to England, and some of them went to Ghana because they really were committed to staying in Africa. Ghana is uh, in many ways an easier place to assimilate because they speak English there, it's having been um, a British colony, and also because this is, you know, Ghana is in West Africa while Ethiopia is in East Africa. So actually the ancestors, like the blood ancestors of the Rastas and black people in the West are, are likely to have come from Ghana and other countries um, along the West Coast. So it has a lot of um, draw for uh, not just Rastas, but for, especially for African Americans. It's the most popular tourist destination in Africa because um, you can even visit uh, slave castles through which some of our ancestors may have passed and been warehoused uh, before making the Middle Passage to the New World, which is an important journey to reckon with history for, for a lot of um, black Americans. Here I am in Accra. <laughs> this young man in the I Don't Give a Damn t-shirt um, was named Elolo, and I hired him to take me Excuse me, I hired him to take me to one of those slave castles. Uh, he drove me from Accra, the capital, to Elmina, the site of the most notorious slave castle. And because he didn't perceive me as a black American, he was quite open with um, his confusion about these, uh, this, this sort of roots tourism that happens. He said, we don't really understand as Ghanaians why you would spend like $2,000 for round-trip airfare, which is more than we make, most of us make in a year, to cry over ancestors you never even knew. And I, you know, I was trying to tell him about kind of the, the pain, um, the historical gap um, that many people are trying to retrieve um, or fill some terrible hole or some kind of longing. And uh, he told me a joke, which I really didn't find funny, and yet you know, I had to kind of grapple with what he was saying. And his joke was, you know, don't, the, don't these black Americans know that if a slave ship arrived on the coast of Ghana today, it would sink to the bed of the ocean from the weight of all the Ghanaians clamoring to get on board just to go to America <laughs> for the opportunities it would afford them. So for him, his dream, you know, for, to have broader horizons is to go to America, while a lot of the people I was interested in talking to were people who were desperate to leave America out of feelings of dispossession and disinheritance and disillusionment, um, they felt so unhappy here that they would leave to try to find the promised land somewhere else. So that was an irony. This little girl is jumping up and down calling me Obruni, which means pretty much the same thing as Ferengi meant back in Ethiopia, which is outsider, foreigner, white person. And it's also a term she would use for black, black Americans whose skin is as dark as hers, which, again, can be quite hurtful for, um, for visitors who are looking for a sense of kinship or, or belonging. And by this point in my journey, um, the women were asking me, where are you, what are you really looking for? <laughs> like, where is your husband? Where are your children? What do you mean you're, you know, like you're looking for home? Home is back home. You're not from here, you know. And this man is asking me the same thing before inviting me to dance. So I went home, um, where I lived in in Harlem. This is 125th Street. I like the similarity between these two men in terms of like the color palette of their clothes. 
That's kind of something in the swagger, the sense of style. Um, the time I returned to Harlem, which is itself a black Zion, right, that, that drew so many people during the great migration of the 1920s through the 70s, six million um, African-Americans fled the feudal uh, caste system, really in terror um, of, of the South, in order to find the promised land um, in cities in the, in the Northeast, uh, including um, you know, Philadelphia, Baltimore, uh, Harlem, and uh, the Midwest and the West. Whether or not they found the promised land they were seeking is open for debate. Another picture from 125th Street. This is a Vietnam vet who walks around that street with a staff claiming I am somebody. The time that I returned from my my world travels was um, during Obama's first election, which was a hopeful time of promise, not just for black Americans, but um, for a kind of a, a more equal sense of of opportunity in this land. These are pictures, again, from Harlem. There was a real palpable sense of, um, obviously not just in Harlem, but excitement about what he meant as a metaphor. And I was interested, too, how he really configured himself during that election um, as Joshua, right? Especially when he was talking to faith-based groups. He, he, he claimed to be Joshua because Moses never actually made it into the promised land. So Moses, we often think of Martin Luther King as being sort of a Moses figure. Um, and in a way, Obama was very craftily posing himself as standing on the, on the shoulders of Moses, uh, the, the civil rights movement, really, the civil rights era, and what that had meant um, by claiming to be Joshua was the one who brought the Israelites into, into the promised land. So my journey ended uh, in the American South, and I was interested in exploring two things. One was what has happened since the era of civil rights that uh, at least one major arm of the black church that I was interested in exploring, uh, the Church of the so-called Prosperity Gospel, what has changed since the civil rights era that Zion, which used to be, it has always really been, a metaphor for freedom, is now often posed as like a metaphor for capital. Uh, and so I w- became kind of obsessed with preachers like Reverend Creflo Dollar, who some of you may know, like, who are very troubling to me, um, that it seemed like they were preaching a message of, uh, you know, that finance was the way to freedom. And so I went to his church in Atlanta um, to learn more about that, that. And while I was there, I visited my uh, father's family. These are people who have relo- he'd re- recently relocated from Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, after, which is where my father uh, was born, after the event of Hurricane Katrina. And that event, it seemed to me, was another kind of African diaspora, or black diaspora. So many people had to leave home um, because, of, because of that terrible event, but also because of the failures of the infrastructure to support them, right? FEMA and, and the insurance companies really failed them. And so I wanted to know, even for my cousins, my extended family here, 
you know, what does home feel like for you now? And some of the members of the family were quite bitter. They were saying things on this day like, you know, boy, Katrina really shoved in our faces that a black life is still worth less than a white one. All these, all these years later, that event really made us aware of that. But then other members of the family, particularly because it was Easter, like my cousin Tracy all the way to the right here was saying, you know, let, let's stop that talk, at least for today. We, we're here with each other. We have a roof over our heads. Um, we have family. We survived. We're survivors. And after all, home is about the people around you. Home is where you make it. And I'll end with a picture of her daughter, my cousin Amani, who as a result of her uh, talent and aptitude for dance, but also uh, as a, an act of charity because she was a Katrina victim, was given a scholarship at a ballet school. And I'm happy to report it looks like is now becoming a professional ballerina, which I'm not sure is something that would have happened to her had she stayed in Mississippi. So I feel like it's also a lesson that, you know, as complicated as home can be, um, there is there's beauty, you know. So um, I'm going to read a, just a couple pages before we open it up to Q and A from the book. I told you I was going to read from the from the Jamaica section, which I will do. So again, I'd gone down there to learn more about the Rasta faith, and I showed up at the Twelve Tribes headquarters. There were three Rastas who agreed to speak with me. Their names were Shadrach, Culture, and Reuben. I'm not going to attempt a Jamaican accent <laughs> because when I try it, I sound like my, my Irish grandfather. <laughs> so maybe you can imagine it in your mind. Choman, make I and I speak now, said the third Rasta, Shadrach. He had on a loud sweater that could have come out of Heathcliff Huxtable's closet on the Cosby show. I couldn't understand how Shadrach could stand wearing acrylic in the middle of July. Maybe his circulation was poor. He was considerably older than the other two Rastas, old enough to remember waving the Union Jack as a boy in short pants on King Street when the Queen of England rolled by in her topless motor car, stiffly waving her gloved arm at the crowd on her yearly visit to Jamaica. He was also old enough to remember the first Groundation Day, a Rasta holiday that commemorates April 21, 1966, when Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie visited Jamaica and was met at Kingston Airport, much to his surprise, by a crowd of 100,000 drum-banging Rastas who saw him as their god and king. Shadrach's long white locks were tied back with a shoelace. He had a braided beard, tinted eyeglasses, a slight stutter that didn't affect his grandiloquence, and vitiligo on his fingertips, which were pink as an albino's. He pushed the sweater sleeves above his elbows and took a drag from the chalice of weed on the table before him. A whole lot of people them mix up around religion, he said. Them say for them thing is right, Rasta, Muslim, Christian, Jew, but in all of them denomination you find good and bad. Belief kill and belief cure, no true? True, I said, recalling my complicated conversations about Zionism back in Jerusalem. Shadrach took another hit. I and I must put away our petty difference. We all come from one root, one blood. The truth is not about black nor white. The truth is not about writs nor rights. The daughter here no seek indoctrination. 
Tell us, daughter, what you seeking. Home, I said quietly. Then you must read the Bible and find truth for yourself, Reuben interjected. His Star of David ring caught the light as he spoke. Read the book from beginning to end. Don't just pick and choose. Start at Genesis 1. Finish at Revelation 22. I'd been instructed to do the same thing in Israel, more or less. Read the Bible as a history book. I was loosely familiar with the Bible from a childhood of classes in the Confraternity of Christian Doctrine and weekly attendance at Catholic Mass. Yet I never met a group of people as versed in the Bible as the Twelve Tribes members. They and other Rastafarian sects preached that the stories of the Old Testament refer to black Africans who descended from the Jewish fathers, Abraham and Jacob. White Christians, they believe, altered this fact to keep Africans in a subordinate position. A chapter a day keep the devil away, piped culture. If you seek, you shall find, said Shadrach, extending a lit match to Reuben, who had just finished rolling his own joint. I tell you this, sister, and Reuben said, the truth will be revealed to you if you seek it, but not through the path you come by. The path not by genealogy, geography, or blood, but by spirit. I inhaled, knowing he was right as soon as he said it. At its root, my quest wasn't about identity, it was about faith. None but ourselves can free our minds. Reuben spoke with his hands. The hand holding the joint described ovals of smoke that disappeared in the air. The place you're looking for is an inborn place. Zion can only reveal itself unto you when you know who you are, he told me. If you read the book, then you will see you are a true Jew. A Jew? Some people consider Rastafari a third-world millennial Jewish sect. Not only are the Rastas Philo-Zionists, but their identifying dreadlocks are inspired by the same Nazarite vows that inspire the sidelocks of the Hasidim. Their Ital food is influenced by the same Old Testament laws as the kosher diet, and the lion, Judaism's symbol for the tribe of Judah, is Rastafari's ubiquitous symbol for Haile Selassie, who claimed to have descended from that tribe. But unlike the Jews who await the coming of the Messiah, the Rastas believe the Messiah was incarnate in Christ and reincarnated as the Ethiopian king. They see Haile Selassie as the second coming. Do you think of yourselves as Jewish, I asked. We're not Jewish, culture corrected my language. We Jews. I wasn't surprised by his assertion. The African Hebrew Israelites had told me the same thing back in the Negev desert in Israel, picking and choosing passages from the Bible to prove it, much as passages can be chosen from the Bible to prove anything. It was an attempt to locate the black diaspora in history, to tie their condition to the experiences of old, and to make a modern faith ancient. For the Rastas, as with all black denominations steeped in the Judeo-Christian tradition, Exodus is the most important book. If there was a Zion for Egypt's slaves in ancient times, there must be a Zion for the children of slaves in the modern era. If Jamaica was the Rastafarians' land of captivity, it followed that they were its Hebrew people. Okay, I thought now. Fair enough. We may as well have been listening to Desmond Decker's infectious ska hit, The Israelites, which compares earning a living in Jamaica to slaving for the Pharaoh. Who doesn't want to think of themselves as one of God's chosen people? I'll stop there. And why don't we open it up to a Q&A or conversation? I'm happy to entertain questions about... 
um, my journey or any of the themes that I brought up. Don't be shy. Yes. <laughs> I was particularly interested in uh, let me tell you why first. My name is Zach Hamis. Uh, I'm a Palestinian from Nazareth. Ah. So I have a different angle on the journey of black Africans uh, journey to Palestine. Yeah. What you call the promised land of Israel. Yep. In modern terms. Uh, the search for home. This is everybody's journey, right? Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me that to, you know, as a Palestinian, I feel there is a, a, a huge campaign to erase Palestinians by Israel. Yeah. And it's been, historically, it's it's been the, uh, the project to it's, erase yeah. Palestinians who have lived in, uh, in the Holy Land for thousands of years. And uh, so I sometimes when there's a discussion of the journey of Jews, whether you're Jewish or not, to where Palestine, yeah. troubled as it is, as that land is right now, yeah. so troubled, like daily, it's daily in the news about tragedies. Uh, it, has, it seems to be that that land has capacity for tragedy more than the sky covers. Yeah. And, but it troubles me that in all of your talk, mm. I felt, I as a Palestinian, you, you probably didn't intend that, but I felt that you erased the Palestinian from the equation. Yeah. The indigenous people, it's, it, it's as if talking about America, yeah. this land, without talking about the Native Americans. Yeah. And I think that's not, uh, it's not helping, personally, uh, in, terms of, in terms of like peaceful projects, uh, Finding home without violence and without having some other react to you as an invader, right? As a, you know, as a colonialist, right? So I don't know much about the Falasha experience. Yeah. Uh, the Falasha tribes going to uh, the Holy Land, but I know a little, which is uh, which really the little I know is about security and intelligence services, Israeli intelligence services and French intelligence services transporting these financial tribes, sometimes not knowing, these tribes not knowing where, they, where their destination was, but brought to Paris and from Paris uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, to the land, to the Holy Land. Mm-hmm. So anyway, but I just wanted, I'm glad I was the first to so <laughs> me, but I think it's an important question that needs to be at the center of this you know, conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective, and I'm glad you went first too. Um, so I, I didn't go into it in this talk very much, but the, the book is separated into five geographical sections, really. The, the first is Israel. And uh, as I said, I was visiting my, my best friend from childhood who had made the decision to become an Israeli citizen. One feeling I had there uh, during the visit, during, during the second intifada, when I felt this simultaneous um, rapture with the beauty of Jerusalem, at the same time a deep sadness, um, uh, over, the, over the political situation, and also um, 
uh, a feeling of outrage on behalf of the Palestinians. I felt that my friend had become a part of a, a state, uh, an oppressive state, that in a way didn't deserve the friend that I believed I grew up with. To the extent that I was um, angry with her for having made the choice, you know, to become to become this, and it's it's a this is sort of a, per, a more personal story, perhaps in the larger themes you're discussing, but it but it's a big part of this book too, is this uh, confrontation in her spirit even between her longing to be in this place as a Jew and what it means to be part of the Israeli state. Um, wanting to kind of work towards peace, but being in a place where there are very few people that she feels allied with. Uh, so which is why I said, even though I felt in a way jealous of her being able to become part of a, a people or a place that seemed to embrace her where she might belong, it was, not a, it was very premature of me to think that that was a simple choice or a simple realm, when, when in fact, how can, how can this be how can this be Zion for Jews when it's superimposed on another land, like another people who are being oppressed underneath it? It felt like the terrible paradox for me. And for the two groups I was interested in talking to, um, if, I, if I spoke Arabic, this, this, this book might have been wider than, than it is. But these two groups I spoke to, I also wondered, do you have affinity for Palestinians? Association, particularly the Black Americans, I saw a parallel in sort of political circumstances being um, being an oppressed people. I said, here here are these Black Hebrews who claim to be Jews and living in Israel. They're not considered Jewish, yet they call themselves Jewish. But don't they have some feeling of sympathy or empathy for the Palestinian state? And they wouldn't talk about that with me. I think because it would have been too dangerous to do so because they're being allowed to squat there, that if their sympathies, I mean, I don't know, but it felt like they, didn't, they, they weren't even free to talk about what might seem like parallels you could make between these two peoples and histories. Um, so uh, these are some themes that you will find, you will find addressed in the, in the Israel section. It's not that it's a race. It's not exactly the focus of the book, but... I'm glad you brought it, brought it up as something that seemed missing from the talk. Um, because the promised land, yeah, home, the search for home, of course, is a universal search. Other questions? Yes, yes, sister. Thanks, um, th- uh, thanks a lot for coming. I will just uh, hi- highlight um, a few things. Um, in his journey to Jamaica, and I'm talking about the profound Pan-Africanist Walter Radney. I call attention to his little unknown book called Grounding with My Brothers. Mm. When, he was in Af- when he was in Jamaica as a lecturer at that college in Jamaica, he engaged some of the, um, the most advanced West Africans, including Bob Marley. And he told them, you, you, you want to be free? Mm. Fine. But let's get clear. To be free, you have to understand your enemy. Mm-hmm. And right now, you don't understand your enemy. So he had 
a few, a few sessions, African history, world history, with them. But, but still, most of them don't get it because they don't want to get involved in politics. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that when, um, when, the, when the session was over, it seems to me that Bob Bali in particular began to understand the Baba is, is absolutely right. That to get freedom, you have to become political mm-hmm. to understand your enemy, which is, you know, which is world imperialism. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that Bob Marley began to develop more political songs as opposed to just, you know... Um, feel-good songs. Exactly, feel-good, yeah. you know. Yeah. Now, at the same time, Walter Rodney denounced Hill Selassie. He denounced, and he put it in historical context. Hill uh-huh. Selassie is, a, is an agent of imperialism. Yeah. So obviously, it seems to me the Rasta is very confused. Uh-huh. <laughs> very confused. At the same time, Baba Paul Robson, one of the greatest Pan-Africanists ever, mm. he denounced Hill Selassie. Yeah. For being an agent of imperialism, for, for, I mean, for, I mean, for murdering the people of Ethiopia. And at the same time, Paul Robson put the ancient Kushite Empire in context. Another one was Kwame Nkrumah, denounced Hill Selassie, mm-hmm. especially after Hill Selassie, um, especially when Kwame Nkrumah was overthrown. He began to realize that, that Africa is in serious trouble. Mm-hmm. People like Hill Selassie, and all the other crooks in Africa, they got to go. And the only way to do that is perform African and world, world revolution. Mm-hmm. Now, and lastly, in regard to um, what the brother mentioned, um, I don't think you, um, your book is on that, but, but no question. The sister people of Palestine must be self Determine. Yeah. So, all the way, the sister, um, the sister people of Palestine, they, they deserve a state. But it seems to me, quite frankly, yeah, it will not be done unless people of the world get involved, and, uh, and, and, and especially the internal situation in Palestine must be radically changed. Yeah. Like he's doing right now, um, some of the young, some of the youths in Palestine, I mean in, in Israel, is demanding change in Palestine, I mean in Israel. Mm-hmm. Because for too long. Huh? We have a question, so we ask other people. I'm sorry, okay. Um, the, uh, sister, when you were in Jamaica, mm-hmm. did you um, get the feeling that um, there was variations within the Western movement? Yes, very much so. In fact, um, the term you used to describe the, the faith as being one that's confused was, in fact, even in the passage that I read, something that some of the Rastas ad- admitted themselves about the faith. They, they, I like that expression, belief kill and belief cure, right? That in all of these denominations, you find good and, and bad. Um, and, and sometimes people ask me, after exploring this theme in so many different parts of the world, what, what the idea of Zion or home means to people, what did, you, what, did you, what did you conclude it actually is? 
And as these Rastas were telling me, you're going about your quest kind of wrong. It's not necessarily a geographical place, but an inward one. Now, that seemed spiritually correct to me, but what it meant was kind of unclear, at that point in my journey at least. That by the end I had more of an understanding, because I talked to a lot of people wiser than myself, that... uh, Even if we think we're in Zion, so long as our neighbor on the other side of the fence isn't there with us, then we're deluding ourselves, right? It's nothing but an empty metaphor. That the promised land Martin Luther King spoke of in that speech I referred to earlier was not a country. I thought, you know, Martin Luther King Day, when I hear that speech, I always thought he was talking really about a country, about America in In fact, he was talking about an ideal striving for human relationships, right? What a country might become if people really genuinely cared about the others who live within their their vicinity to the extent that everybody should be in Zion. So I'll I'll conclude my answer to your your question and your comments with uh, something very wise that was told to me by another Rasta in Jamaica, who said, uh, uh, how was it that he put it? It was so beautiful. Um, Yeah, he said, even if Jamaica became the Zion, the, the paradise that tourists think it is when they come and experience a sort of version of paradise, even if, if Jamaica became that for all of its residents and all the people here, An island of Zion is no Zion at all, as long as there are people in the rest of the world who are still tearing out each other's throats over land, over money, over oil, etc. So this is a a place that we should achieve, should attempt to be achieving and entering together on a daily basis. Uh, Not really a place anyone ever arrives in and then stays for good. Uh, any other questions, comments? Hi. You touched on it a little bit in your last reading. My question, what's, just sort of your own personal you know, feedback or opinion on this, what do you think drives people of the African diaspora? Um, you touched on the Rastas uh, with their connection to Ethiopia, the black um, sect in Israel, mm-hmm. to make a history in form of form a connection with people where there is very little historical evidence that this connection ever existed. I understand the West African connection, right. but I, I'm really hard-pressed to understand the, the black Jewish connection and the Ethiopian connection. Right. Well, the Ethiopian connection has, as I mentioned, in part to do with the importance of Ethiopia to the diaspora as the one African, sub-Saharan African nation which remained uncolonized, that it seemed to be a realm of uh, power, um, independence, and um, partly for those, those reasons, uh, a place of, of hope and redemption and return. But even before that, uh, it was an important place that, because it's appeared in the Bible, like this most important text, um, time and time and time again. Then there's a piece of scripture. Um, is it in Psalms 68, 31? Uh, kings shall come out of Ethiopia. 
King shall come out of Egypt, Ethiopia shall stretch forth her hands, which is a piece of, of scripture that's been variously interpreted um, in, in the West by black people. But when Haile Selassie was crowned um, in 1930, it was like a big world event. He was on the cover of Time magazine. He was a very charismatic figure who appealed a lot to the West to kind of westernize that that country. In fact, he he instituted its first university, its first airline, um, roads, hospitals, for these reasons, um, as well as because he seemed to be fulfilling this piece of scripture that a black king would come out of, out of Africa. Uh, many people, Rastas, not just Rasta, sort of saw him as um, a really important and even holy figure. So... You're right, there are no blood ties there, really. But I think just for its biblical weight and also its, uh, um, its being a, a metaphor of, of resistance, anti-imperial resistance and against colonialism, it became just a really, a, you know, in the mind, this beautiful realm. And then, uh, ironically, as, as the brother here mentioned, uh, Haile Selassie, himself had imperial tendencies, so it was not that easy, not that easy an analog, um, but, but it but has always been an important realm for black people in the West, for, yeah, for biblical reasons, as well as political ones, yeah. Yes, I'd like to know if, um, if your book relates to any of the history before the splitting of the land masses, and second, in relation, in reference to a Martin Luther King, my understanding, he was uh, referring to the land between the Rockies and the Allegheny as Zion. As I, oh yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't hear the first part of your. Que- it was a question and then a. No, comment. I was asking if your book relates to any of the history before the splitting of the land masses, before the land mass broke apart, uh, or before the Great Flood. Oh, I don't address that in in my book. You mean sort of when? Right, especially in reference to what the brother was saying up here. If you understand that history. Yeah. No. If he understood I, that history. It would bring him back to his own history. Right. Maybe that will have to be the next book for me. <laughs> Thank you. It's a contested history. Mm. Contested. There are two versions. Mm. Uh, there is the Zionist version. Yeah. Zionism has nothing to do with the, the mythical notion of Zion. Yeah. Uh, uh, Zionism is separate. Zionism is a European colonial movement mm-hmm. uh, led by, of course, the Jewish uh, upper class uh, yeah. and its leadership. Hurts uh, and that kind of ended up mobilizing Jewish communities around the world uh, toward this project of building Israel in the 20th century, rebuilding yeah. uh, ancient Israel. Mm-hmm. But... So, yeah, Zionism claims that this land is the promised land. Right. Uh, but actually, uh, uh, there is a repressed history. And that is the repressed history is the history that contends with that version, that this is a God-given land to the Jews. Yeah. There's another version of history that says, no, the Jewish, uh, first of all, the uh, Jewish kingdom, ancient Israel, was there only for 60 years. Mm. Only 60 years. 
in, uh, and it was a, in, in relation to the rest, uh, there were many other people living there besides Jews. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the Philistines, for example, uh, you know, the Palestinians, named after them really, mm. were living there at the time. And uh, we all know the story of Goliath and David. Uh, yeah. So even, even in the Bible, the Palestinians were actually dehumanized, demonized, let's say, as the bad guys. Yeah. The bad guys and the little guys fight, fighting against them. Yeah. Uh, but that's just representation because, you know, demonizing, the same thing happened to the Jews in Europe, demonizing Jews, that Jews are taking all the finances of Europe and so on. But to come back to your point is that there's another version that says, no, that was just a short short history of that area, the 60 years. As a matter of fact, modern time Israel, modern, modern time Israel is 65 years old. Uh-huh. It's actually older than ancient Israel. Wow. So, so there's a lot of, uh, even anthropology, uh, archaeology. My cousin actually is an archaeologist who used to work in Israel. Yeah. And he quit. He quit uh, working there because he was at odds with the Israeli archaeologists because the Israeli archaeologists wanted to name things in a way that fits the Zionist uh, colonization of Palestine. And my cousin, who is now in England, self-exiled actually, uh, ended up just writing papers rather than actually doing field work in archaeology because simply as a Palestinian he could not just buy into this. Uh, yeah. So there are, there, there are two archaeologists, there are there's two histories uh, mm-hmm. uh, contending. Um, of course we know that the Palestinians are the weaker, you know, the, the pro-Palestinian is the weaker side because America is on the side of Israel yeah. uh, in every way, in every way. Uh, so, so it's a really, it's, a, it's an amazing, that's a, an important question that to understand actually the myth mm. of going back to the Holy Land, yeah. the myth, like the, the, the myth that was used to justify a political colonialist project of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, supported by colonial Britain, colonial France, with the money from the Rothschilds in uh, France yeah. and in England, uh, so and and with all kinds of corporations, European corporations, it, that myth of Zion was used, not myth, the mythical dimension mythical, that yeah. was used yeah. to justify it. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I often wonder, you know, if that, if it hadn't transpired that it worked there. Because, as you know, there were other um, realms being considered to create Israel, right? Uganda was one in Argentina. And I, what's that? And Kenya as well. I didn't know that one. But, but it's an interesting thought experiment to think if, if it had happened there, um, in, in one of those realms, A, would, it, would, would Israel have become as large as it is? Uh, and B, what would the political strife be <laughs> as, as a result of its landing there? And this was so I started this project really thinking about Zion as a, as a metaphor in the African diaspora for people who, who, for whom that story in the Hebrew Bible was incredibly important because they had parallel feel, feelings as, as slaves with these characters, with these figures in the Bible. Um, such that they would dream of a realm for themselves, whether that was a mythical return to Africa or a version of uh, the North uh, offering some kind of more freedom than they had in the South. 
under under slavery and then under Jim Crow, or as a picture of the afterlife, or as you know an idea of capital um, of entering America, which is, has also been configured as a Zion by you know Puritans and and settlers from other lands who come here, including this this young African man who thinks of it as a kind of a kind of a Zion to come to to find fortune here. I began sort of thinking about this as really a metaphor, but then kept confronting what you're what you're really talking about, which is that this is actually it's not just a metaphor; it's also a history, and it's always been a problematic history, and it continues to be one. That that is, any time you arrive as an emissary from some realm, thinking you can create, thinking you're returning to a land that you have some claim or ownership to. Um, and you see this with some African Americans who go back to Ghana, right? Or with some of the Rastas who go back to to Ethiopia. Well, this is very problematic and, and angering for a lot of the locals who have lived there for so long. To think, by what right do you do you claim this as home? Um, it, and so, so everywhere I went, there was sort of strife between the local culture. Sort of, I guess the, the analog would be with with Palestine. And these people who were who were coming back and claiming to kind of um, claiming reparation or claiming uh, a home, so it was, it was troubling and sad and confusing and complex um, and terribly interesting source material and difficult to wrap one's mind around. But so I thank you both for those comments. Um, and there's a lot more for me to learn clearly about the meaning of Zion for different peoples. I was just wondering why, or did you consider Liberia in your studies of oh, mm-hmm. Zion? Thank you for bringing up Liberia. Um, Liberia and also Sierra Leone are, are, are interesting, um, obviously interesting and important uh, sites for this story. During the, the 19th century, there were back-to-Africa movements where... Um, where free slaves went back to you know went back to Africa and then did become African and I I didn't explore those those realms uh, a because I didn't I ran out of money <laughs> b because I'm not really a historian my father's a historian and is interested in in um, the past and so am I to a degree but what I really wanted to do in this book was talk to contemporary emigrants, like people who could tell the story of the old place and the new place, such that they could answer my question, which was, did you find the home that you were looking for? And frankly, the answer across the board was really no. You know, And the best that could be said was, I didn't find what I was looking for, but if I found something good uh, rather than something bitter and disappointing, it was because I shed my idea of what it would be, my idea that I had some sense of ownership over this place, and I became absorbed in local politics, in local culture, um, such that I opened my eyes and my ears, and I changed, and I transformed, um, and was affected by this place, not just the dream of this place. So um, I I, I do treat Liberia and Sierra Leone as, as colonies in my book a little bit, but I didn't go there to interview subjects because I felt too much history had passed, and I, little, I knew a little bit too much about um, the civil wars and sort of sad histories of, of those places to consider uh, either of them sort of successful uh, utopias, right? 
Just a quick question. When you were in Ghana, um, did, did you, for a lack of a better word, did you interview any mainstream African Americans, like non-Rasta people, yeah. professionals who moved there and yeah. how they were faring? There's a, you know, there's a very strong community of expatriates, many of whom have been there since Nkrumah's era. And for those of you who, who don't know, um, Ghana is also an especially important, like, lodestar in African-American kind of longing for Zion because it was the first sub-Saharan African nation after Sudan to elect a black leader. And that was in Kwame Nkrumah in 1957 who invited um, blacks from the West to come and settle there in the hopes, you know, he wanted professionals to come in the hopes that it would advance the nation. And so just as there is, uh, you know, the law of return for Jews who, who may go back to, back to, um, to, to Israel, uh, there, there is sort of an equivalent law in Ghana called um, the, right of re- the right of return. Um, you can go and, and, and live as like a, um, I don't know if it's, a, it's not like citizenship, but it's sort of uh, a qualified version of that. And so particularly in the 50s and the 60s, it drew a lot of blacks. Interestingly, this is like the era of civil rights, so things are ostensibly getting better here, but several people are, are going there trying to find home and make a better place. And I did interview several people from that community, um, one of whom was the earliest to go, a, den- a dentist. He was like the first dentist in Ghana, <laughs> and like, still working on the same equipment um, from all these years ago. And then some other people, you know, drew kind of um, bohemian types, wanderers, you know, people like myself who, who are also just really interested in travel and landed there. And to varying degrees, um, again, to, they dissimilated to, to varying degrees. Some of them were bitter too. You know, one woman told me, uh, I, I didn't really find the kinship I'd been hoping I would find here. A lot of the um, locals look at me like an ATM machine rather than a long-lost sister. And um, she said, I realized that 400 years away has made me something different. I'm not really African. I'm black. That's something quite different. And uh, so she kind of had to alter her, her wish, which was to be embraced and... Um, and learn a lot about African history. There, slavery, as that same driver who took me to Elmina said, slavery here is a small story. Like, for a black American, this is, like, confounding almost, right? But, you know, there's a lot of other things that happen. Why do you have to dwell on that all the time? That's very hard to accept. <laughs> and, um, but in a way, if you were going to live there, you, you, had to, you had to kind of accept that. Yeah. Maybe one more question. <laughs> this is just a really quick comment. I finished your book this morning, oh, thank and you. I found it absolutely riveting. What you did for each of the geographic areas, I could almost see it through your eyes. It was wonderful. I encourage everyone here to, to get her book, <laughs> but it really was fantastic. It's one of the best books I've read this month. Thank you. Oh, and I didn't even pay her to say that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you.